0: This just in, you were looking at uh, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center.
1: Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. That just exploded. We just saw another plane coming in from the side.
0: It appears that an aircraft of some sort did hit the side of the Pentagon. Uh, Today we've had a national tragedy.
1: Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center. In an apparent terrorist attack on our country.
0: This year marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the United States. A day that changed the trajectory of world history in ways that we are still coming to terms with. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, a policy analyst here at the Center and your host. For millennials like me, September 11th was the catalyzing moment of my political life. But now there is a whole new generation of Americans, many of whom have served in the wars spawned from that event, who were not even alive on that fateful day. To mark this anniversary, we wanted to talk to someone who not only remembers 9-11, but who was in government at the time. Our executive director, former nine-term Congressman John Tierney, was at the Capitol on 9-11, participated in the immediate aftermath, and has dedicated a large part of his life to redressing some of the worst policies that came out of the fear and upheaval that has dogged America ever since. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that all of American foreign policy and, and maybe just policy full stop changed after 9 11. Certainly, it's been the dominating factor in my professional and political life. So, being able to talk to someone who is not only in Washington, but in fact in Congress that day and the years immediately following, I think is incredibly important as we begin to reflect on this 20th anniversary of that fateful day. So, I'm, I'm curious, you know, just starting the most broadly as possible. What, what do you actually remember about September 11th? You know, what were you actually doing that morning? And, and what has stuck with you all these years
1: later? I can remember that I was in the Capitol for some reason. I'm not sure if it was a, a meeting of some sort or whatever I was doing there. And I returned to my office in the Cannon building. As I came in, Vic Nardelli, who was my office manager, I came rushing over and said, you know, we better turn the TV on. You should see a plane just went into the uh, tower in New York. And as he turned the TV on, they were talking about the plane, that the first plane that had gone in, and right there in front of our eyes, the second plane went in. Uh, And I can remember we just looked at each other and we said, this isn't an accident, this isn't uh, an unusual occurrence, this is something planned. Uh, And so with that, we started to watch it, try to gather more information and learned that, of course, there was another plane on the way uh, and speculation as to where that was headed. So uh, they started to tell officers to vacate. Uh, they weren't sure where it was headed, so they wanted to get people as far away from capital, the capital as they could. Uh, and so they instructed all the offices to clear out. In those days, of course, nobody had cell phones. Uh, in fact, they didn't even have uh, email uh, capacity on that. Or whatever. We had beepers, and that was about it. Uh, so everybody vacated the offices and went to a place they thought was significantly far away from the capital buildings and tried to await further word uh, by... You know, going to a phone if we could get one that worked. Problem was a lot of the phones were clogged. Everybody was trying to call everybody, and people couldn't get a call in or a call out. So uh, basically, I recall sending my staff home, telling them to go home and and just be as safe as they could be, and then locating other members of Congress and trying to get down to the Capitol Police building where we thought there'd be more information and a better communication system, so we could find out what was going on. And we essentially a great number of us gathered there and tried to get what information we could.
0: Do you remember what the mood was like the next day after Congress reconvened? Were folks still afraid of more tax on Congress? You know, what was sort of the sense in the building that day?
1: I don't think people were afraid at that stage. I think originally they were obviously shocked and uncertain as to what was going on. But the next day, I don't think people were afraid as much as they were resolved uh, that, you know, something had to be done and we had to find out more and uh, we had to do what was right. The evening before, if you recall, uh, members of Congress had gathered on the Capitol steps. Uh, and trying to show uh, some strength and, and some unity uh, on that basis that whatever it was happening, we were going to deal with it and confront it. Uh, so that by the next day, people were just eager to get more information and to find out what it is that we could and should be doing.
0: Do you remember sort of that moment when when folks started to realize, you know, you said that very early on, you realized that this was something planned, this wasn't an accident, but as that sort of started to crystallize for you. Do you remember what it was like when you had first briefings about the fact that these were attacks, that these were orchestrated
1: by people? Yeah. I mean, people were sort of soaking in the information. Uh, the administration was sending over people to brief uh, members of Congress first, the House, then the Senate, and sometimes in joint sessions. Uh, and people were trying to learn more about what was going on. We were getting a great deal of our information from the television, unfortunately, as much as we were from the briefings. Uh, a lot of the briefings had classified information on it. so. I was not, at that time, on the Intelligence Committee. I got on later, uh, so I wasn't privy to the actual uh, core information, uh, the the basic data or something like that, but we would get the reports as to what was going on, and people uh, finally came to the resolution that uh, they believed it was Osama bin Laden, they believed it was al-Qaeda, that it had stemmed from Afghanistan. These things developed in a fairly rapid succession of of information. Uh, And, of course, then the president, uh, at that time, decided he was going to... Make a broad statement against the war on terror, and there was some disagreement about that, as uh, many of us it, it knew that terror isn't a thing, uh, you know, that you can go to battle against, you can go to war against, and we were anxious that this not be spread uh, into something that it, that it wasn't. You know, like if we want to try to contain it, to focus on whatever our response was, and have it be um, important and significant and correct, and not just start firing away and, and see what happened.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. I think what sticks in a lot of people's mind here is you voted in favor of that 2001 authorization for the use of military force uh, in Afghanistan. And I know that this is an issue that you in particular have focused on significantly in the past. And I'm curious if we can talk a little bit about what it was like sort of in these just past month here, sort of seeing the final resolution of what has become the longest war in American history that was at the start, at least ostensibly sold as being a response to 9-11.
1: Yeah, at the start, what it was sold as was you know, going into Afghanistan. Once the Afghan uh, government, which the Taliban at that time, would not cooperate with us in disgorging al-Qaeda or assisting us in going in and getting a fine-tuned um, uh, operation against them, and, they, and it wouldn't be cooperative on that basis, the discussion then became, well, what are we going to do about running out uh, al-Qaeda? Because they are the ones that were deemed responsible by our intelligence agencies. We had reason to believe the intelligence was correct. Uh, and so the debate then began what are we going to do and and most people said well we have to go in and we have to get the al-qaeda contingency and it was never about you know taking over afghanistan it was never about creating another government in afghanistan it was about getting al-qaeda and if you recall there's certainly a number of books written about it whatever general franks and the others uh, had them cornered you know we voted for the resolution and i should say that we voted for the resolution and at the time i thought it was too broad uh, and I, I wouldn't go along with the unanimous, uh, consent provision. They wanted to bring it up to the house late at night and just have it go through unanimous consent in the, uh, a, the language as broad as it is. I believe that it, you know, having worked with my chief of staff at the time and other members of my staff that we need to narrow this. We need to narrow it in scope of time, uh, in geography, uh, and in focus of, uh, who was the, the target on that. And, and so we had serious conversations. I remember the speaker of the house was not happy. Uh, Dick Gephardt, who was the leader of the Democrats at that time, was not happy. I remember visits to the office, uh, who's this young guy, I think I was in my fourth year, just beginning my fifth year, who's this guy that's putting a stick in the spokes. And it was, look, it was nothing about not thinking that we shouldn't respond. It was about, we have, to, we have the time here. you know, a, a couple of hours or a day even is not going to make a difference. But the bottom line is, you've got to do this right. And then they voted on it. So we voted with the intention and with the trust that it would be a precision strike to get al-Qaeda and get out. And of course, we know what happened was that uh, the general uh, had him cornered and basically commissioned out the, uh, the attack to the Mujahideen, who then took a, a series of bribes or whatever, and let them scooped over the border to uh, Pakistan. Uh, and that was the beginning of a lot of troubles and the beginning of the scope of this uh, authorization for the use of military force to keep expanding and, and going on. And for the president and vice president others to decide that, you know, they had to stay in Afghanistan. They had to expand it out to punish the Taliban, that they then had to, you know, try to uh, do many more things that I think was intended. And at the same time, made the huge, huge mistake of deciding they were going to take the opportunity to go into Iraq. Uh, And that opened an entirely different set of uh, of factors on that, that we're paying the price for to this day.
0: I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about sort of, there are these moments where you sort of see the writing on the wall. So like Tora Bora with Tommy Franks, you know, that, that they let Bin Laden escape, or, or then talking about the surge in 2009. I'm curious, seeing what we just saw last month in the final evacuation from Afghanistan, I'm curious if you think that, you know, was this something that was avoidable, or, or does this seem like this is how it was going all along? You know, what are your thoughts on how this ended?
1: Well, you, you recall, Jeff, that you know I was uh, on the Government Oversight and Reform Committee and on the Subcommittee on National Security and Foreign Affairs. So we did a considerable amount of oversight uh, for that whole period of time. In the latter part of the 2000s, I was chairing that committee. So we spent a lot of time in Pakistan and Afghanistan and trying to get the lay of the land of what was going on. And uh, for anybody, I you mean, know, we went over on a half a dozen or more fact finding trips, basically looking for fraud and abuse and you know things that were going wrong and found a myriad of things over and over and over again. Uh, And, uh, you know, there there were people that were telling the truth, and there were people who didn't want to hear it. And there were a whole bunch of uh, generals, as I say, who kept insisting, you know, just give me more troops and victories around the corner, but never really devised a plan uh, that was going to be for victory. And when people started saying that General David Petraeus's plan uh, would be the one to work, uh, that you had to go in on that, when you start running the numbers, even if you follow his book, it would have taken between 800 and a million two troops to go in and occupy Afghanistan. And there was never any sign that any country, not just the United States, but any country was gonna make the commitment of that type of person power and those type of resources uh, to go in and be able to do a job where you could support a government, put in a government that the people would trust, put in all the institutions and systems and train up a military uh, and do it in the face of considerable uh, opposition. And if they weren't going to do that, then a hundred thousand troops wasn't going to make a difference, and fifty thousand wasn't going to make it, eight thousand wasn't going to make a difference. And yet the generals kept saying, "We can do this. We can do this, and it's right around the corner."
0: I, I think that that this sort of takes me nicely to the next question, which is this: this difference between sort of what the the like official position was, or like what the you know the rah-rah messaging on on this war was, versus reality, and. Um, I think that that a lot of it, you know, at least as, as a young person that was going to school at the time, was sort of thought of as, and I'm using air quotes here, patriotism, right? Well, you're unpatriotic because you don't support this or whatever. But when this, this quote, patriotism was at its peak, John, you, know, you, you still voted against the Patriot Act. You voted against the 2002 Iraq AUMF and the 2002 Homeland Security Act and other le- legislation that was billed as, quote, being patriotic and keeping America safe. And I'm curious what it was like to take those positions back then. And what lessons should we all take from that now? What can members of Congress learn today about this fear of being labeled as weak on defense?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a real mantra that really affects the psyche of Democrats, right? When there was hawks, mostly Republicans, but also Democratic hawks who out there and shout, if you don't throw money at the Pentagon, you're weak on defense goes right on down that mantra. And and people are scared to death because they have bases spread all over the country. Uh, They have uh, military industrial institutions all over the country that supposedly jobs uh, as if we couldn't create jobs in a a more productive way. But all of these things come into play. uh, And so it's difficult, but by the time uh, that we started talking, I I do have to say there were a number of members of Congress who had been utilizing different capabilities uh, to learn about the the Middle East and uh, Southwest Asia Uh, and Islamism and all of those things before the 9-11 incident happened. Uh, And that was uh, by fortune more than anything, you would take your vacation time and doing these seminars and these uh, trips or whatever and familiarize yourself with it. So uh, there were a core number of people who understood what was going on and had an appreciation for it. When we went into Afghanistan and that was botched, and then the president wanted to go into Iraq, by this time, most of us had really had our ears to the wall thinking, this is not right, something's going wrong, and even got more scrutinizing in our approach. And we had a better avenue. I think at that time, Nancy Pelosi, of course, was on the Intelligence Committee or in the leadership and had been on the Intelligence Committee and was sharing as much information as she could legally share. And we would listen to the briefings of the intelligence agencies and the 16 intelligence agencies that are out there. You remember that they, that some of them through real questions about the intelligence that was going into the decision to go into Iraq. So we were having hearings on it in my committee. I can remember having hearings on the effect of this whole thing. And we came very clearly to the conclusion that they can't prove a thing about Iraq having nuclear weapons on this. This is all nonsense. And it felt bad for Colin Powell uh, when they sent him in front of the UN and he was made a fool. But i tell you what, he should have known. He and his staff should have known better and they shouldn't have digested what was fed to them so readily on that. But that's why we voted against that. And it was difficult. And there were 155 members of Congress that voted against going into Iraq. It wasn't a handful of rogues or three or four people. So, you know, we were some brave, continue to stood up. There were a lot of people that knew this was wrong. But I can remember saying to my wife when I got home, I'll well, probably just took my last vote in Congress pretty any consequence because the papers are going to kill us. And then people who aren't aware of everything are going to jump on board. And sure enough, for a matter of months, all I heard on the street was, what are you doing? How come you're not doing, you know, it, after about five or six months into it, when things were going belly up and it was pretty obvious that they, they had done the wrong thing, there was great amnesia that set in. Uh, I was getting in, questions from the press, about well, why did I vote to go into Iraq? <laughs> They're like, whoa, you know, he was talking, he said, we didn't vote to go in. You know, some of us, 155 of us voted not to go in.
0: So, so just bringing this back for a second, we're looking at votes in Congress right now that will change the national security and foreign policy of this country again. For the next thirty years, right? We're talking about massive new investments in nuclear weapons, basically a twenty-five billion dollar plus up of what is already one of the largest national defense spending bills in in history. I'm curious, you know, what what do you say to colleagues who are in Congress today about sort of that fear is being seen as weak on defense? What is your advice on that?
1: Look, the only advice I can give is, is know your constituents and speak to them. As I said, there there were plenty of military industry people in my district, plenty of veterans. Uh, and also some reasons say, oh, my God, I got to take this vote because otherwise people think I'm not supporting them or whatever. What I found was true was if you go and you spend frequent occasions of visiting with your constituents and speaking to them about why you're voting the way you vote and explaining it, they don't, they're not stupid. They get it, you know, and I would have people tell me, geez, you're right. I mean, look at the amount of money they're spending on that and look at this system that's behind schedule and over budget and they would get it. And so they. Long as you were explaining what you're doing, they sometimes didn't agree with you. But the most common refrain I got on that end is, "Well, I may not entirely agree with you, or I'm not sure, but you did your homework, and you have a reason for doing it, and you're making the case, and you seem honest and sincere about it." And that's what members should know: is you know, like it's contingent. It's important that they have a communication and transparency with the constituents so they can take the votes they want to take. You know, I, th- I think you have to make the case. I don't think there are enough. People willing to make the case, and and Jeff, you know that from the work that we're doing uh, in current times. You go to somebody and say, "Look, this particular weapons system doesn't work," and, and here's all the experts telling you it's not working and why it's not working. Here's the billions of dollars that have been wasted on this or whatever. And, and so I present this to you with the, with these experts, and you can do what you want to do. And the answer is, well, you know. I don't disagree with you, but we've got to make people know that we're doing something or we're thinking or trying to do something, whatever. That's not a good answer. That's not a good answer anymore. Any more than it's a good answer to say, well, it provides jobs in my district. Your companies are quite capable. Your, your employees and your district are incredibly capable and creative and able to do some very good things. Uh, and every time we close a base, for instance, you know, in a, in a number I think at least 19 instances in one report, They got 125% or more jobs created after the base shut down and something new was brought in. So where's the creative thinking amongst our members of Congress, even ones that live in bases that might be exposed, being closed or impacted one way to say, look, we want to do this in a phase. We're going to phase this base out, but only as we're phasing in with the next adventure and the next employer or employers are so that our people will be secure. But they present it as an either or, you have the base, you have zero jobs. That's a lack of creativity, I think, and, uh, and I think we need to get to
0: that. Let's step forward here a little bit. So when you look back now, you know, you've know done a number of things since, since leaving Congress. When you look back now at how the world has changed, specifically in national security in this post-9-11 world, what do you think stands out to you most about what is different between before 9-11 and after 9-11?
1: The degree to which people uh, are willing to throw money at the military uh, and the the shrinkage of people that are willing to stand up and say that just doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I mean, it's mind boggling that you could be pulling out of Afghanistan and pulling out of Iraq and somehow wanting to spend more money on a defense, more money than has ever been spent, even at the height of the Vietnam War, you know, proportionally at the height of other wars uh, and going on. And it, it, it's as if this the military and the industries you know, like that have to have a, a boogeyman so they can keep building stuff and keep moving on and and keep being profitable on this. Or when you get out of the military, getting a job on a board, uh, there's an incredible number of military officers who all of a sudden are on boards, corporate boards. That's not a mistake, you know, and and that's a real problem. I think we ought to be looking at that as well. Uh, But that's the degree, the degree to which there seems to be an unending desire to throw money uh, into systems that are unnecessary or don't work or to rethink our whole approach to national security. Uh, I mean, the idea that you're gonna, you're never gonna run out of money for the military, uh, but that means you're probably gonna run out of money for education, infrastructure, healthcare, uh, pandemic response, fighting climate change, and not thinking that you're destroying your own national security in that sense. You know, and for those of us who understand, and I think it's by far the majority of this country, you know, uh, people are independents, Democrats, reasonable Republicans, like that, who understand that you have to have compromise in, in a nation like ours with such geographic disparity and income disparity and ethnic disparity, and all of that it has to be a way to compromise that isn't perceived to be selling out, uh, isn't perceived to be, you know, like capitulating on every issue, or uh, well, you're never going to get things done in a democracy.
0: So, looking at sort of the, the long term effects here of 9 11. The U.S. now has hundreds of bases around the world and in countries that Americans have never heard of. You yourself have been an advocate for overseas-based investigations and closers, for classification issues, dealing with sort of stuff that is spun off of the war on terror. And, you know, all this is ostensibly set up in this nebulous idea of, of fighting terror, like you said in the very beginning, right? You can't fight a war on terrorism. It, it's it's sort of a non-starter. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do we prioritize U.S. national security in a smart way, in your mind, going forward, without racking up trillions of dollars in new debt? How can we begin to responsibly scale back sort of needless weapons spending and focus on things that actually will make the country safer?
1: Well, this is, this is where Congress has a role, but the, one of the problems right now is the committees that might be charged uh, with looking into that aspect and trying to create a, a wider strategy and review where we've been are by and large captured, captured by the military, captured by the industries. Uh, and it's not everybody. I mean, there are good people like Adam Smith and others who understand what's going on and, and speak out. But if you went through the Armed Services Committee, the Senate and the House and look at their votes, clearly they're captured by the military and by the industries, whatever they want goes. But the people who would be valuable would be, be the ones like uh, Adam Smith and others. they like, wait a second, step back. And as you mentioned earlier, what are we doing this for? What's the strategy? What's the end result that we really want? Why is it that uh, the today's uh, oversight committees, both in the Armed service Committee and the Oversight Reform Committee in the House and the Committee in the Senate, why aren't they holding hearings on 800 bases worldwide and forcing the military to come in and justify the existence of every one of them? What does that do to further the national security of the United States versus fighting climate change? Having a pandemic response, making sure our infrastructure from everything from the Internet to our electric system, uh, to our water systems, to our roads and bridges uh, and our ports are solid and secure. I mean, when we're spending money, there's got to be some balance here. So what is a base in God knows where uh, that might have 80 uh, military people doing other than paying rent uh, to the local government over there, sometimes not even wanted by the local government, but their have been twisted uh, in return for foreign aid. And why don't we shut that down? But I don't see those types of, of hearings going on. And now that we're out of Afghanistan and Iraq, and and maybe people will say, all right, well, now we have other things to oversee. Uh, and we'll look at some of these issues.
0: I'm curious, John, like we've already talked about, we're at this moment, we're about to spend more money than almost ever before on defense. When we've just seen in the past year, more Americans have died from a pandemic than in all of the wars fought in the 20th and 21st century do you think that something is really out of touch there do you think the pressing issues facing this country aren't being met by what our spending priorities are and how can we change that
1: clearly and again the only way we're going to change that is if people speak out all right in in this country it, it, it it starts with people being made aware being informed about it and insisting that their elected officials do better it then takes elected officials you know, who are willing to take have the courage to go out there and risk maybe not being reelected, but doing what's right as opposed to what's just going to get them on this continual uh, payroll for a job uh, and to do it. And I'll give you one example that you're aware of, Jeffrey. Recently, the Senate Armed Services Committee was looking at a proposed budget from President Biden that was actually larger than Donald Trump's already bloated and overinflated military budget. So you had money upon money upon money. And you remember one time President Trump had said he was going to cut the budget by 50 billion and actually ended up increasing it. And don't be questioned about how is it one day you can think you can spend this much money and the next day, all of a sudden you're going to spend a lot more. That went by, but he got the money. President Biden then recommended even more money. And in the middle of the armed services committee hearing is because to add more. And everybody on that committee. Democrat and Republican alike, except for Elizabeth Warren, voted to do it. She knew that was nonsense. If we ever had a vote in the Education Committee, which I served for about 18 years, that said, you know what, here's the president's recommendation for a budget for education. I move, we put $50 billion more on there, and I'll tell you where we're going to spend it later. That would not have flown. All right. So under the guise of being strong in defense and national security, there's a lot of silliness going on. And unfortunately, it was replicated in the House when they tried to put in a, almost another $25 billion. And their thing was, oh, well, we're not just putting it on for no good reason. We're actually taking all of the things on the military's wish list, things that they didn't think were high enough a priority to put in their base budgets, and saying, oh yeah, what the hell, give them that too. You know, and people forget that if it was only a couple of years ago, the Navy was returning billions of dollars that they couldn't even get to spend in a given year. There's just a need for people for Members of Congress to do their oversight work and to speak out and to inform people and to, and to be loud on it. So, our institutions are, are really at risk right now. Why don't people understand that citizenship comes with a price? Citizenship is a responsibility. I mean, if you think back in the 80s and the freeze movement, uh, the reason we had a reduction from 70,000 warheads, nuclear warheads to under 15,000 was that people rose up. People in Russia. People in Europe, people in the United States, doctors and women and physicists and others rose up and forced the uh, consensus people and in the, in the political operators and the military operators to come around and do something, where at that time, again, people have to, have to get back to that point.
0: I think this leads me to my last question, Congressman. And the strange fact is, is that many of your staff members today are too young to even remember September 11th. What words of wisdom can you offer young Americans about this fight between our perceived need for more security and accountability? How can they make a difference going forward?
1: Well, it's involvement. Uh, you know, this generation, I think you see it happening. They're, they're involved in uh, social equality issues and uh, inequity issues. They're involved in climate change and the environment. Uh, they're involved in Black Lives Matter. Uh, and as I said, it, it takes this generation... It's probably not, it's not fair that they're going to have to get a lot more active than maybe some others, that some part of their life's going to have to be set aside for these things and and not others. But if they want to have the kind of country that I believe they want to have, uh, then it's going to take involvement and you've got to speak out. Uh, you know, maybe I'm saying that as a product of the 60s uh, when we spoke of, about everything, you know, on that, whether it was the environment or whether it was racial justice, or whether it was war or things of that nature. But we had a lot of bandwidth. And we have a lot of activity and we were willing to take risks uh, on that. And we expect it to be heard. Uh, We were adamant about that. And of course we upset a lot of people, Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, you're over 18, you can vote, which means, you know, you should have an opinion that should be counted and you should make yourselves heard and you should be listened to. Uh, And so take all of that and keep up the fight. Interestingly enough, it really informs your life. It makes your life more worth living. You will make more friends and more associations and feel more accomplished and engaged if you do that than if you sit back and just go about your daily routine and complain about what's happening all around you you know it, it really makes life more worth living and, and certainly more rewarding
0: outstanding thank you so much congressman we really appreciate talking to you today nice talking with you i think the congressman is right 9 11 drastically changed our nation and the world but therein lies a tremendous challenge and opportunity to reevaluate America's role in the world and boldly take ownership of the challenges that lie ahead of us. This nation, its ideals, and the promise of its young people can be champions in the fights that lie ahead. We are faced now with the terrible trials of climate change, political division, an evolving global pandemic, and the enduring threat posed by thousands of nuclear weapons worldwide. But if we can work together, we can help chart a better course for this nation and the world. The legacy of 9-11 does not always need to be one of fear, division, and upheaval, but can serve as a powerful lesson for how we should change the way in which we meet uncertain times in the years ahead. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It is produced by Rowan Humphreys. As always, If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. Thank you, and we'll see you again soon.